Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. Well, two weeks ago, I began a series on the Beatitudes. I talked about the the fact that Jesus was introducing a a new revolutionary way of thinking. He wasn't just up to to speak a nice message in the hope that the people would come back next Sunday, which is what I do every week, just praying that you'll come back next Sunday. Jesus was actually trying to challenge the way they thought. He was shocking them into asking questions that would lead to transformation. I stated that the the Beatitudes can teach us uh, three things. Firstly, what I dealt with last week, that we need a right perspective about ourselves. God blesses those who are poor and realise their need for him. And we need a right perspective about our sin. God blesses those who mourn and are humble. Second thing, which I'm going to deal with some of today, we needed a change of heart. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful who have pure hearts, who work for peace. The outcome of doing all of that right is that we get persecuted. It's a great bonus uh, for us that you know you're doing it right when uh, things can be going wrong. I I established last week that we need to recognise, firstly, that we need God, that we have a spiritual poverty, that we should be sad about our sin and humble enough to give control to God. If you weren't here last week, the the message is on our website. I encourage you to to listen to that. And so today I want to begin part two. We need a change of heart. Starting in verse six, I'm not going to read all the Beatitudes for the sake of time this morning. You'll find them in Matthew chapter five. But verse six says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is actually communicating a really powerful and important doctrinal concept for us to get our head around this morning. The doctrine of righteousness. See, righteousness is about our our standing with God. It's uh, uh, asking the question, do we have the approval of God or not? You know, many Jews and and even in the early Christian church, and sadly, uh, a lot of people in today's world act as if we, if we do enough good things, if we just treat people right, if we just give enough, if we pray enough, if we serve enough, then we'll get our way to heaven. It's called the, the doctrine of works. Or, and, and Paul, in particular in the New Testament, had a whole lot to say about trying to earn your salvation. He, he told, tells us that it's absolutely an impossible thing to do. And he said things like this, no one is righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. 
For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That's a powerful passage of scripture. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he was writing to the church that had been established there in the hopes that he would be able to one day visit them. His plan was to get there, but he was in prison. He didn't know if he was going to make it. So he wrote a a letter to the church in Rome explaining everything that they needed to know. All that he, he would want them to teach them if he was there, he put in this letter. That's why Romans is such an incredibly valuable book in the Bible because it, it outlines the, the, the whole lot. And here we see that we may write through Jesus Christ, that God sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. You know, it's an absolutely foundational concept. It's one that I talk about righteousness a lot, or at least I feel like I talk about righteousness a lot because I want us to get it right. The result of not living or understanding righteousness is quite detrimental to our faith. If you were here last week, I mentioned that Jesus never corrected people for their lack of knowledge. He corrected them for their lack of faith. He said things like, you people of little faith, why were you afraid? There's a powerful story of an encounter that Jesus had with this rich, uh, wealthy young man. This guy had had been keeping all the rules. He was doing what was right. He knew the law. He knew how to to live his life. And and he came to Jesus, and Jesus was talking to him about eternal life and and, and what it meant to follow him. And, And Jesus says to him, he challenges him to go and sell all his stuff and come follow him. The Bible says the rich young ruler left sad because he had a lot. See, he had a head full of knowledge. He knew the right things to do. He knew how to act right, behave right. But in this encounter with Jesus, we see Jesus wasn't interested in his knowledge. He was interested in transformation evidenced in his life. Would he be prepared to leave all that stuff that he'd put his faith and his dependence upon and follow Jesus? There aren't a lot of people in the Bible that is recorded that Jesus personally invited them to come and follow him. This guy could have, but because of what it would have cost him, because it was more than just a head full of knowledge, he left sad. Now, there's a a, a process that that works through this whole idea of righteousness. So the Bible says that we're saved by grace and not by works. But it also tells us that faith without works or actions is dead. And that can seem like a little bit of a contradiction, but it's actually not, because faith in God leads to transformation. That's the the two elements of the cross. The transaction, the downward part of the cross, is when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, as we do what Romans said. We believe that he was a sacrifice for our sins. But the crossbar is about transformation. It's about living a changed life because of the reality of who Jesus Christ is, because of what he did for us, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and, and maturity in our lives. We live lives of transformation. So we're saved by grace and not by works. Faith leads to transformation. Transformation leads to action or works. Our works don't define our salvation. Our works are the evidence of our salvation. That we, we live a different kind of life. We do things that normal people wouldn't do, like go to working bees. That's how we'll know if you're saved in this place. Will you show up for the working bee? 
We give money. I mean, who does that? We serve people. We live lives that are marked by faith in action. In church, we use specific language. We, we say that our mission is leading people to become fully committed followers of the ways of Christ. Then I talk about our method, the, the three C's. Connect, contribute, and celebrate. We, we connect with God and others, and, and that's really important because in so many ways, our relationships define us. Those that are closest to us have a large influence on us. They, they help shape our thinking and our, and our behaviour. Just look at a, a bunch of teenagers hanging around together. They might not all want to do the same sort of things, but they all end up doing it because of the group think that takes place. We, we begin to become like the people we spend most of our time with. And we want to have an intimacy with God that allows him to shape and mould us. We want to get to know and connect and, and build relationship with people in this room because we can help each other. But then we want the, the other relationships in our lives to be influenced by the transformation that's taking place in us, connecting with God and others. But then I talk about contributing. And, and our, our belief, and I've talked about it through this uh, a little bit, is that it's not about information, it's about transformation. And we believe that transformation takes place with faith and action. When we contribute, when we are part of, of the, the bigger picture of this church family, when we're at the barbecue cooking Max down at, at, at Maria at, at Bunnings, we're, we're, we're contributing because that's where transformation takes place. When we are in the trenches, we're working together, we're, we're doing our piece, that's where we grow. That's where real change takes place. That's why I finish most of my messages with a, a, a faith step or an action point, something to do from here because I don't want to just teach. I want to lead us, hopefully, towards a place where we allow God's transforming power to be at work in our lives. So step one is getting things right with God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is painting a picture that would have struck the audience really hard. The religious leaders in Israel, there are four main parties, I'll talk about them in a moment, they, they were, were the, the pinnacle of Jewish society. They were the ones that, that taught others how to live these so-called righteous lives. And Jesus is saying, unless you're more righteous than all of them, you're just not going to get there. And, and that would have been shocking for them because they, they would have immediately gone, well, how? How can we ever obtain righteousness So let's just pause for a moment, look at the four main parties. I've just said that information is not the goal, transformation is, but it's also important to have a bit of information. The Pharisees, they, they believed in uh, the, the law, the, the law that had been given. They believed in traditions that had been handed down through generations from, from different rabbis. And they, if they observed the law of Moses and traditions really strictly, they, they believed that, that, that things would work for them. The Sadducees, they're focused on living life in the moment now. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They, they discredited a lot of what had happened in their past. And, and the way that I remember the Sadducees is a little saying I've said here before. It might help you to remember it. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They discounted the supernatural. 
the, the Essenes, they believed that right religion meant being separate from the rest of society, and, and they lived in, out in, in where there were just basically no other people. They, they gathered together in barren areas, in the Zealots. Well, they're the, the uh, fanatical nationalists who thought that right religion centred in radical political activism. If you weren't prepared to take up arms against Rome, then there was something wrong with you. So this is how we can summarise that. The, the Pharisees said, go back. The Sadducees said, go ahead. The Essenes said, go away. And the Zealots said, go against. Pharisees were traditionalists. The Sadducees were modernists. The Essenes were separatists. And the Zealots were activists. Just a, if you want to write that down, but you don't have to. But just a, a way of kind of understanding a little bit about how the Jewish structure worked. And to, to tell a Jew that they had to be better than all of the, this... They had to live a life of greater righteousness, was to set an impossible standard. The point was they would never be able to achieve it. Jesus wanted people to recognize they were stuck and then ask a question what's the solution? The solution was Jesus. So, this is how I've explained righteousness here before, and I'll keep doing it until you all say we know it and we can do it ourselves. Is righteousness is about our standing with God. So we, we live our lives, and, and as, as we go through life, we, we do things wrong. We make mistakes. The Bible calls that sin. The Bible says that the, the price to be paid for that sin is an eternal separation from God. So in other words, there, there's a, a gap in eternity that can exist between us and God. Now, we, we sometimes say that we're separated from God here on earth, but the reality is we're not. We, we live and move and have our being in God. God can work on, on people's lives that aren't Christians. People that, that don't yet follow him can receive uh, the miraculous, that, that God, they can encounter God. Lots of stuff can happen. There's not a, a separation here on earth, but the separation is an eternity. And when Jesus died for us, he stands in the gap in eternity between us and God so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees his son, Jesus Christ, and us as forgiven. Sometimes we think about righteousness as removing all our sins, which takes us back to the start. I don't know about you, but if I was suddenly back and having no sin in my life, I'd sin immediately because I'd be quite proud of that. And We just simply can't not sin. We, we were born in corrupted seed through Adam. The Bible talks about that. Sin is part of the human condition. But Jesus Christ doesn't take us back to the start. He takes us to the finish line and says, you're righteous. As Steve just said, it is finished. The work of the cross is what bridges that gap in eternity between us and God. Righteousness is incredibly important for us to get our head around. So if our desire is righteousness, we can achieve it, but there is only one way. And that was through Jesus. What we're really talking about here is grace. Grace to me is so beautiful. Grace says you're not good enough and it doesn't matter. Grace says you can never work hard enough and it doesn't matter. Grace says you can't buy it, you can't earn it. Grace says you must receive eternal life. And that is grace, the gift of God. I want to get... A little bit serious here for a moment. If, if you're new to Christianity or following the ways of Jesus, I want you to listen carefully. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this part is for you. The Christian life that you're living isn't all that you thought it would be. I encourage you to tune in for the next few minutes. Because the way 
that we view our relationship with God is determined by our understanding of grace. Some of you this morning may have, during worship or sitting here now, or I don't know what's running through your head, but you may have felt guilty about things that you did or said during the week, about an overreaction, about something that took place. Some of you are ashamed of some things, and I want to tell you this morning, and you need to hear this clearly, guilt is not from God. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt is that feeling when we've done something wrong. It's a natural kind of thing. We teach our kids about the consequences for doing things wrong. You break the rules, there's a price to pay. We teach it in our society. There's a law and there's penalties for breaking the law. We learn it in school. My boys, just Jordan just got his silver award for good behaviour at school. But if you don't behave well, you don't have an opportunity to do certain other things. There's a consequence to our behaviour. We're trained, we're equipped that way, we think like that, our worldview is like that. Yet when it comes to Jesus, it's the complete opposite. That the There is no consequence for our sin once we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. He took the punishment. He took the penalty upon himself. And what I've discovered about guilt, guilt has never, ever driven me towards God. Guilt drives me away from God. Because when I feel guilty, I don't feel like I'm worthy to come into his presence. I don't feel like I can lift my hands up and worship because of the things that happened during the week. I don't, I don't feel like I, I'm good enough. I don't think I'm going to measure up. I, I'm worried that someone might find out about my, my garbage. Guilt has never taken me closer to God. When, when I've done something against someone else and, and you feel guilty about that, what do you do? You avoid them. You don't want to be around them because it reminds you of the thing that you've done wrong. Guilt is not from God. The enemy will whisper in your ear, but yeah, but you did this during the week. You said that. No one knows, but you did that. You live a life of compromise. That's why, because of grace, we can come and worship. We are free to be in this place and to love God and be accepted by God is because of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace and not by works. Let me illustrate grace by using a story from the Bible. One day, a friend of Jesus's was sick, a man by the name of Lazarus. Family sent for Jesus and Jesus was doing other things and he arrived a little bit late. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus rocked up to Lazarus, he was already dead. And I love the way the King James says it, he stinketh much. <laughs> Mediterranean around there, it's a pretty hot part of the world. Middle East, he's, he's in a tomb. And the body started decomposing and Jesus has rocked in and, and he, Lazarus stinks. And, and Jesus walks up and he calms everyone down and says, it's okay got this, and he says, Lazarus, rise. Lazarus gets up and walks out of the tomb. I'm assuming he didn't stink much and the decay had gone back. What did Lazarus contribute to being raised from the dead? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Jesus didn't walk in and go, Lazarus, if you could just wiggle your finger a little bit, I'll know we're on the same page here. If you could just give me a little something to work with. 
He didn't say, Lazarus, if you could just flinch a little bit, I'll do the rest. I just need something from you. Lazarus contributed nothing to being raised from the dead, and that's what grace is. We contribute nothing, but we get it anyway. This is this great verse that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 4. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. We were like Lazarus, we were dead. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It's the Lazarus picture again. We contributed nothing. God did everything. We have to understand that, church. We have to remind ourselves of that because we're going to default back always to what I do or don't do. It's natural. We just always go that way and we have to keep reminding ourselves the grace of God is such that I contributed nothing and God gave everything. Grace matters because even though we're sinners, God still welcomed us. Righteousness matters because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. It means you can come to God and not hide from God. It means you are good enough, you are worthy, not because of anything that you've done or not done, but because of everything that Jesus did. And the second way we live this life that Jesus is talking about is found in verse 7, living lives of mercy. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I believe there's not a person in this room who's in their right mind that would say, I don't want mercy from God. Let me explain grace and mercy like this. Mercy could be defined as God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Grace could be defined as God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy and grace are inseparably linked. If we had mercy alone, we wouldn't get what we do deserve, which is the punishment for our sins. But we also, without grace, wouldn't get what we don't deserve, which is eternity with God, relationship with him. So I'm going to take it for given this morning that I'm not in a room full of fools. You want the mercy of God because mercy removes the punishment and grace makes the way. And the good news for you this morning is this. All you have to do to receive mercy from God is live a life of mercy. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's a story that Jesus uses that illustrates uh, mercy and grace a bit here. It's in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a long story, but basically this is what happens. Peter comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus... How many times must I forgive someone? Seven times? Now, I can imagine Peter. I love Peter. I feel like a lot like Peter. I just, just never quite seem to get it right, no matter how good your intentions are. So Peter's here and he's thinking, okay, this forgiveness thing, how, I wonder how that works. How many times am I going to have to forgive someone? He thinks, I oh, know, I'll ask Jesus because that just makes sense. And he thinks, I'm going to make myself look good. Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? Which sounds like a pretty big number. I don't know about you, but forgiving someone seven times, a lot of forgiveness. And, and Peter comes and Jesus says, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. I can see Peter's brain 
being blown in that moment. Like 77 times, are you kidding me? And then Jesus tells him this story that there's this king. A king or the master is really wealthy and he's got a whole lot of servants working for him and, and a bunch of his uh, staff, servants, owe him money. And uh, there's this one particular servant that owes him millions of dollars and the king decides to settle his accounts, call in the debts, and he comes to the servant and says, I want you to pay me back the millions that you owe me. And the servant says, I can't do that and, and just give me some more time. And the, the master says, no, that, that's not okay. I'm going to sell you and your wife and your kids and all that you own and, uh, to recoup the money that is owed me. And he falls on his knees and he begs him, please. The master takes pity on him and, and, and forgives, uh, decides that he's not going to sell him. Right? That's the, the mercy part. Okay, I'm not going to make you, give you the punishment that you deserve for what you owe me. And then there's the great part, and he says, in fact, I'm going to forgive your debt. He didn't get what he did deserve, which was punishment, and he did get what he didn't deserve, which was his debt paid. And he rejoiced, and he was happy, and he ran out of there, and he's walking along, and he comes upon someone who owes him a few thousand dollars, and, and he says to that, that person, you pay me now. And that person says, I can't pay you, please give me some time. And he says, no. And he says, you're going to be dragged off to prison and you're going to work in prison until you've paid off the debt. Well, the other servants that knew that he'd been forgiven millions went back to the master and said to the master, this is what's happened. Master calls him back in and says, you evil student, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then he finishes the story. That's what my heavenly father will do if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. It's a pretty compelling story. We've been forgiven this huge debt. The debt of all our sin. Everything that we owe to God, the mercy and grace come into play. We've been forgiven. The master has not only wiped the debt, but he's set us free. And now the responsibility is on us not to hold against someone else, not to demand payment for what has been done wrong. We have to live lives of mercy. So how do we do that? Well, a few thoughts this morning as we begin to wind up. Mercy forgives. This passage couldn't be more clear. We must forgive. We must not wait till someone comes to us and drops on their knees and begs us for forgiveness. We must forgive and we must continue to forgive, not seven times, but 77 times. Mercy lives life of forgiveness. Mercy doesn't carry the offence with them. You know that offence can never be given. Offence must be taken. I guarantee you, hang around here long enough, I will offend you. It's a promise. You can write it in the end of the book of maps in the Bible. Pastor Dave will offend me at some point. We can't ever give offence. Just read the newspaper on any given day and they'll guarantee there'll be a story about someone who said something with really good intentions and someone else took it all the wrong way. When you said that, I heard you say this and, and it blows up and, and people with, can have incredible hearts and attention and called all sorts of horrible things these days because we're so quick to take offence. Mercy forgets. Mercy forgets not, not just uh, forgets debts, not monetary debts, but relational debts. This is similar to 
mercy forgives, but I've realized that it's actually a lot easier to forgive someone than it is to forget what they've done. We, we can forgive someone, but then we can continue to remember all that they did. I have to challenge myself about this regularly. There's something that, that I do that I'm sure a lot of you do. I rehearse things in my mind, situations. I, I rehearse conversations that may take place or may not take place. What a situation is going to look like. I, I, I can go back over things that people have done against me or that they've done in, in, in general, and, and I can remember those things. And, and I can have forgiven them for it, but I'm going to continue to remember those things. And the problem with doing that is it sets ourselves up to unforgive them really quick because they do something else and we start remembering all the things that they did in the past. And the moment we do that, we've actually unforgiven them because we're holding them to account again for that which we said we've forgiven them for. Micah 7 19, once again, you'll have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. It's what it's talking about God and what he does with our sins. When he forgives us, he tramples them under his feet and throws them into the depths of the ocean. We need to try and live that kind of life. That we forgive and we forget. Mercy looks past the surface and sees the good in a person. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That should be our default position. We should see the good in people. We should look for the good in people because it's really easy to see all the bad stuff. Sometimes we have to look deep and find the good in a person. If I was to have a conversation to you about what growing up was like with my stepdad, and many of you know parts of the story. I could paint a picture of, of this horrible man and how bad my life was and, 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 and what childhood looked like for me. There's so much that was wrong with this, this man who was incredibly broken. And, and yet, as I grew, as I matured, as God did a work in me, as I learned the power of forgiving and, and, and moving past those things and decided my life wasn't going to be defined by that any longer, I realized that there was so much that was so good about my stepdad. So much that I could admire in him. We can focus on the negative all the time, but let's make, be people who make a choice to see the good in other people. Because even the worst people have redeeming qualities. Mercy opens doors that others would shut. Mercy gives opportunities with wisdom. And I say wisdom here because uh, there's certain things that it's just not good to give second chances to if we need to look after our kids there's no room for second chances and protecting them from evil. We have to be wise, but we have to be people of the second chance. I read an article about a guy I know in New Zealand who started an alternative education school many years ago that, uh, in, in Porirua in, uh, near Wellington. And he, uh, he drew all these kids that were excluded from uh, mainstream education. They, they weren't whether it was because of gang affiliations or truancy or violence or drugs, for whatever reason, they did not fit in mainstream education. And this was the second chance. This was the chance for them to come and actually get their stuff sorted out in a supportive environment and work through, through things. And many of them go on to achieve uh, their, their school certificates and go on to further education and apprenticeships. And there's great success. And he has a, a quote on his wall, second chances are rare, so you use your first one well. But 
this was a place of giving a second chance to these kids, opening doors that others had shut. And Mercy, finally, the worship team can come and join me, gives the benefit of the doubt. You know, if there are two ways of interpreting something, Mercy chooses to look at the best way, not assume the worst in a, com- in a conversation or about a person or their behavior. It's so easy to be critical of someone. It's easy to pull someone down, especially, and we need to hear this, if it makes us look better, we're really quick at doing it. There's something that we deal with as parents that I'm sure every parent has to deal with at some point is that our kids love to dob, that they love to get their sibling in trouble, especially if you've just called them on something that they've done wrong. Normally the first words out of their mouth were, yeah, but so-and-so did this. And we don't like it. I, 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 that drives me absolutely nuts as a parent. And I'm sure lots of you have dealt with that. Maliki, you've got all that to look forward to. John, I'm going to give you some advice. We've instituted a rule in our house that if you dob on someone and they ended up, end up getting punished for it, you get the punishment as well. Because I want our kids to learn to lift each other up and support each other and encourage each other, not look to pull each other down. Not to always see the negative, but to see the positive and be there for one another and, and be family. Might seem a bit harsh, but you know, it's Kerry's fault. So, <laughs> so faith in action time. Remember I said that I, I, I don't want to just give us information, but we want to have application. We want to turn our faith into action. So over the next couple of weeks, what I want you to do is this. Consider your responses to things. Consider the way you think when something's said or done. Does your mind default to mercy or do we see the worst? Do we start accusing? Do we assume bad in people? Are we living lives that our default position is forgiveness, is forgetting, is looking past the surface? And if it's not, if our thoughts aren't laced with mercy, ask God to help you transform your thinking. You know, the first step to change in this whole area is recognition. Recognition that we aren't living the kind of lives that we should be living. Because I I don't know about you, but I want to live a life of mercy. Because I sure as heck don't want justice demanded by God. I want to receive the mercy that God has. And his promise to us is that if we live lives of mercy, we will receive mercy. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, that's our goal, transformation. Pattern of this world sees the worst. Pattern of this world is to pull others down to raise ourselves up. Pattern of this world is pride. But the transformed life is a life of mercy that understands because we've had such a big debt forgiven We should forgive others of their debt because it doesn't come close to what God's forgiven in us. That we should be people whose default is mercy. God, help us. Help us to live lives of mercy. Help us to be people who forgive. God, for those in this room who don't understand grace, are struggling to accept themselves for what is happening in their life or the way they think or their actions. God, we thank you that you're our Father. Because of Jesus Christ, we are right with you. 
we can come freely into your presence with no guilt, no condemnation, but love and acceptance. Our church, the first part of this that I talked about was that we need to acknowledge our need for God. Talked about righteousness being made right with God. I don't know where everyone in this room is at right now. I don't know what's going on in your life and your world, but I just want to pause in this moment and give you an opportunity to say, God, I need to get things made right with you. Just like Jesus was explaining to the Pharisees, uh, to the people, sorry about the Pharisees, that righteousness has to exceed. It's an impossible standard. You'll never achieve it. None, None of us are righteous, the Bible says, not one. It says, for the wages of our sin or the consequences of our sin is death at separation from God for eternity. I don't want anyone to miss out on that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So if that's you this morning, you say, I need to put things right with God. Maybe you've never done it before. You've never stopped and paused and said, God, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus. I want to live for you. That's you this morning, just as I look around, I just want to give an opportunity to pray for you. Everyone might be okay, and and that's great if that is the case, but I just want to make sure that you understand this morning the grace of God is there for you. Nothing you've done is too big. No, where you've gone is too far. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? go to the depths of the earth you are there God is where you are so God we thank you for your grace God we want to live in it we want to experience it we want to know it in our minds God pray that you help us live transformed lives through your son Jesus Christ Amen Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.